Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. This September, we're holding our annual gathering at the vaults to celebrate our historic home in Edinburgh and also our membership around the world. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, this year's gathering is going to be slightly different in terms of how many members can travel to be with us in Leith and how much we'll be doing online instead of in real life. But we wanted to bring the spirit of the vaults to you, wherever you might be, and to help to do that, I turned to the person who found the Society's spiritual home while he happened to be in a stroll around the water of Leith. I'll hand over to the Society's founder, Pip Hills, to tell that remarkable story in his own voice. Sit back, pour yourself a dram, and enjoy the next 10 minutes of society history. The Water of Leith is a little river which runs through Edinburgh to meet the sea at the Port of Leith, and beyond that to the docks on the Forth Estuary. Besides pubs and tenements, the old Port of Leith consisted mainly of warehouses and whisky bonds. Some of the warehouses were very, very old, and by the early 1980s, many of them were still handsome. I had always thought that the finest was a four-storey building with a tiled roof and a stair up the front to first floor level, where there was a rather a grand door. Grand for a warehouse, that is. It was set behind a high wall with a gate and seemed rather mysterious, for there was no notice or nameplate which told you its name or what it did. From time to time the gate would open and a lorry, often laden with barrels, would enter or leave. The building was called the Vault the definite article indicating some pretension to uniqueness. They vaults, not just any old vaults in a port stiff with vaulted chambers. I had long admired it and had no idea what went on behind the wall. One day, shortly after we had decided to start the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and thinking that the mysterious building would be very suitable as the headquarters of the society, I walked in the gate and climbed the stone stair which runs up the outside wall to first story level. The entrance had once been smart, but was then in need of some paint. There was a capable-looking receptionist who asked who I was and inquired civilly what she could do for me. I explained as best I could why I was interested in the building and inquired politely what was happening in it. She informed me that this was the premises of J.G. Thompson & Company, Scotland's oldest wine merchant. Might I see whoever was in charge, I asked, again politely. She pressed a button on her desk, and presently a middle-aged, balding man in a dark business suit appeared. She invited me to step into what is now the tasting room, which, then as now, held a long mahogany table and some chairs. His name was John Walters, and he would go to a great deal of trouble to facilitate our purchase of the vault. I explained about the newly born Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which was in fact only a few days old at the time, and our need for a building such as this. It seemed like a daft sort of thing for a perfect stranger to ask, and I covered my embarrassment by saying that this was the first time I had done anything of the sort. Was there, I asked, any possibility that the owners might consider an offer to buy their premises? The chap in the suit gave the impression that things like this happened every day in his firm, though 
to my knowledge, it was the first or maybe second time it had happened in the preceding 500 years. He replied that, by mere coincidence, the firm was moving to new premises in a month's time, and yes, he was sure that the directors would look favourably on any reasonable offer. I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stiffen in the way that they do when the zeitgeist seems to be taking command of the ship. I became aware of the contrast in our styles and attitudes. I was in my usual attire of jeans, jersey and leather boots. He in a three-piece suit with a watch chain at the waistcoat. He was part of an old established firm of wine merchants to which the building was merely an obstacle to business efficiency. I was enthused by the possibilities which such a building offered to a company which as yet had done no business. He offered to show me round my prospective purchase, and we began by going back down the stair. The building does indeed stand on four ancient vaults, which are entered by a stairway from the courtyard. The stairs are worn in the middle in the way that steps wear if they have been trodden for many centuries. Off a dank, dark tunnel ran four chambers, whose low barrel ceilings hung with a black fungus. Above ground are another four apartments, three of which were lined with stone bays, some still holding wine bottles stacked on their side. The fourth apartment was a surprise, a white-painted room with two windows, between which, set in the wall, is an alcove with a stucco scallop shell above. There is a fireplace and some more of elaborate plasterwork, evidently old. On the first floor, up the outside stair, were Messrs. Thompson's offices, two of which were remarkable. On the left at the stairhead is a handsome room, the room I have mentioned, again with two windows, between which there is a mahogany cabinet whose doors open to disclose a sink with a single tap and racks for holding inverted wine glasses. The room was obviously used from time to time for tasting wine, and it turned out spirits. It still is, I'm pleased to say. On the right from the little lobby was a chamber, just as surprising. A vast room taking up the entire end of the building, the height of its ceiling showing that it also occupies the floor above. There are two fireplaces and many tall windows. It was full of desks and chairs that appeared to be an office. The upper floors of the building were half empty, but harbouring the detritus of many generations of use as a warehouse for wines in bottle and in jug. I was later to discover that there had been a building on the site since at least the 14th century. There are few authentic records, but those which exist show that the building was used by the monks of New Battle Abbey for storing their wine in medieval times. It was held in feudal tenure from the superior, the Lord of Ressorig. The monks, or rather their serfs, dug coals from the sour surface of Midlothian and dragged them on sleds to the river bank below the vault, where they were dumped to await loading onto ship in return for the wine brought from France. It would be several centuries before wheeled vehicles became common in Scotland. The quayside is still called the Coal Hill today, though few of the people who walk along it know why. Maybe once in a while someone wonders why a street which isn't a hill and has no trace of coal is called that. It's called that because for about 500 years there was a pile of coals on the quay. At some point, probably after the Reformation in the later 16th century, the building appears to have fallen into the hands of one of the medieval craft guilds which then controlled commerce, the Vintners Guild of the Port of Leith, which had a monopoly of the wine trade in Edinburgh, Leith and much of the surrounding country. 
The room with a fancy stucco was caught where the dean of the guild auctioned cargoes among his members, which is why today it is called the Vintner's Room. The fungus, which even today is to be found hanging from the roof of each of the vaults, lives on the alcohol which evaporates from the wine in the casks. It is black and horrible and it hangs in strings, and it looks as though it would do for dressing the set of an amateur vampire movie. I would later ask some of my microbiologist chums in the university to analyse it. They came up with a list of moulds and fungi, all apparently living in symbiosis and getting their energy by metabolising the ethyl alcohol which had evaporated from the casks. One of the moulds, it turned out, was penicillin. There was a tradition in J.D. Thompson & Co. that if anyone suffered a cut or abrasion, a boy would be sent to the vaults to bring a handful of mould which would be applied to the wound, which would then heal without festering, possibly the earliest known use of penicillin as an antibiotic. An enterprising wine merchant called John Thompson had bought the building, consisting of a single story with the vaults beneath in 1705. In 1785, his descendants raised it to its present four stories, using a great timber beams brought by sea from Lithuania. You can see one of the beams in the stair leading up to the flats above the society. I used one of them for deck beams for an old fishing boat I was rebuilding, and if you stand outside the building and look up, you can see the windstone rubble of which the first story is made is a darker colour than the stone of the upper stories. The firm of J.G. Thompson was still in existence, and it was offering to sell me such a building. If I needed any further incentive, I had it in the fact that the building had been in use in the liquor trade for six or seven hundred years, and by establishing our business there, we would be carrying on in a small way a Scottish tradition, a real one in a land whose most famous traditions are fake of great antiquity. Also, it would do very nicely for what I had in mind. I won't go into the detail of the building's restoration. Five of us put up the cash to buy it for £50,000 which didn't seem a huge amount of money for a building like that. One of the five, Ben Tyndall, undertook to act as the architect, and an excellent job he made of a horribly difficult project, and I devised a scheme to access government grants, which were then in fairly plentiful supply to help with the funding. Overall, however, it wasn't a financial success, for the fabric turned out to be much more problematic than the surveyors had predicted. We eventually had to liquidate the company and all five of us lost our money. But by the time that happened, the society was doing well enough to allow us to buy back part of the building, the part that mattered most to us, the ground and first floors with the vaults underneath from the receiver. And we carried on as we were, if somewhat poorer and possibly somewhat wiser. Whatever lessons they learned, we can all be grateful to Pip and his fellow investors that whatever difficulties they encountered, the building was eventually reincarnated as the home of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and it remains so to the present day. We call it our spiritual home, and with good reason, and whether you can make it along to our gathering at the vaults in person this year or not, we hope you'll be raising a glass to the building that still takes pride of place on our bottles and at the centre of our SMWS badge. You can read more about the vaults and its history in issue 49 of Unfiltered, available to members of the SMWS at smws.com forward slash unfiltered. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.